0: where we explore matters of the Spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg.
1: Greetings, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Spirit Matters. Uh, This is the reboot (laughs) of the podcast I hosted with Dennis Ramundi for six or seven years uh, that ceased to be, but the archive lives on, and I want you to know you can go to spiritmatterstalk.com or the YouTube channel of the same name and uh, enjoy about 300 interviews that we've done, uh, we did in the past. This new version continues the uh, tradition of having conversations with a diverse range of wise people uh, with a lot to offer everyone who's on a spiritual path. Today's interview is something of a departure. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with the show know that uh, we tend to have experts of different kinds who are usually out of the mainstream of religion. But uh, Today's guest, Dr. Uh, Richard Lisher, is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church with many years of uh, pastoral experience and a long tenure on the faculty of Duke Divinity School, where he taught in areas such as practical theology and preaching. He's also written several books, including one about Martin Luther King Jr., a personal memoir about the death of his own son, and others But what drew my attention, thanks to the good people at Oxford University Press, is his latest book, Our Hearts Are Restless, The Art of Spiritual Memoir. Spiritual memoir is, uh, I I hold to be a very important literary genre that's uh, inspired and informed and in many cases transformed uh, readers' for many, many centuries now. And a great many people have written or want to write (laughs) their own spiritual memoirs. I come into contact with them all the time. So I thought this would be a very fruitful conversation, memoirs being so popular, especially now. So welcome, Professor Lisher. Thank you. Um, First, let's begin. I'm intrigued, and when I first heard about the book, I was intrigued by the title, Why Our Hearts Are
0: Restless. The the quotation is, of course, from uh, early on in Augustine's Confessions, in which he says, in what is perhaps one of the more famous theological sentences in the Christian tradition, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that struck me as um, incredibly relevant for the writing and reading of spiritual memoirs today. He doesn't come at you with this notion of Puritan depravity. He doesn't say he's blind and Uh, hopelessly ignorant. In fact, he says just about the opposite, as Augustine would. He uh, doesn't picture himself or anybody he knows as a spider dangled over the pit of hell, the way Jonathan Edwards uh, (laughs) did in his famous sermon in Massachusetts. Um, In fact, he uses a non-theological word. Restless is not a theological word. Mm. It's a cultural descriptor. Uh, And in his case, he's talking about somebody who's gifted, fairly well off, uh, surrounded by friends and highly cultured, who has so many options at his disposal that he can't seem to light on one, which leaves him in a perennial uh, state of dissatisfaction with himself and the world. Now I realize that we're talking about a huge gap of time, but somehow that restlessness that Augustine experiences uh, resonated with me and continues Mm -hmm. to resonate with me. It's not the only thing about Augustine that resonates with me, but that did initially. And uh, I actually thought of a a wonderful uh, book about American religion written back in the 19th century that has an entire chapter titled, Why Are Americans So Restless? Nah. So uh, this is, a, I think, a relevant term to use for a spiritual memoir.
1: Um, since you mentioned Augustine, <clears throat> he is said to have been, and you say, uh, the, uh, the sort of progenitor of the spiritual memoir. Explain that
0: historically for our listening. He He's not the only person of his time to have written a memoir in general. And we're not sure what drove him to, to the conclusion that he should write one. Uh, others had written memoirs before them, before him, and they, they tended not to explore the interior life, Mm. which is what makes Augustine's uh, memoir so modern-feeling. He's not usually designated as the creator of the genre of memoir, Mm. but uh, certainly, uh, usually the word modern slips in there, and he is considered modern because he writes about the things that are going on inside his heart and his head. Uh, He doesn't merely make lists of good things and bad things, the way some of the Roman progenitors had done. But he explores himself in a way that is um, truly an appreciation of the mystery, not only of God, but the mystery of his own life. Mm-hmm. He wonders why he does the things that he does. Why, he says in one famous chapter, would I, without any reason, are liking for pears, decide to steal a whole bunch of pears and then throw them at pigs? It's a good question. When I was a kid riding on the back of a pickup truck, I remember uh, throwing watermelons off at about 60 or 70 miles an hour to see them splatter on the highway. Why would I do that? Mm -hmm. What's the point? So that, for Augustine, it's typical Augustine, I I think typical of the preacher Augustine who is always going to find a vignette, an image drawn from life uh, with which he can help his readers understand deeper spiritual things. So that, that is uh, a big part of the attachment to Augustine, is that he seems to satisfy what we consider to be uh, the essential dimension of spiritual memoir. And that is talking deeply about ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What well, what he also does, which uh, sometimes isn't really noticed by contemporary readers, is that he talks a lot about God. And his understanding of God is not coming from inside himself so much as uh, God is this spiritual force that is constantly pulling him toward a place that he doesn't want to go. Ah. So there's this push and pull from inside and outside, and the outside pull is God. And it's all very, very complicated in Augustine because where he finds God is on the inside, in his memory. He treats Hmm. memory as if it's a miracle, that uh, God can dwell in his uh, his own finite memory. Interesting. Um, Would...
1: uh... You include Augustine in the book. In fact, you have two chapters on him. And then there's, by my count, 21 other people you you profile and, and discuss their memoirs, um, their spiritual memoirs, some of whom are very familiar, like Augustine, so Thomas Merton. James Baldwin, which is an interesting choice I want to ask you about, but there are also some people I, I'd never heard of, some still living some centuries in the past. Uh, why? How did you choose the people you did out of the you know, hundreds of memoirs, of spiritual memoirs that are out there? Why, why those
0: choices? I wanted to avoid the stereotyped idea of the spiritual memoir as a conversion story. Uh-huh. The theme being once I was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So, and there are a lot of those. And conversion is a greedy topic. Uh, it will take up all the oxygen out of the room. But the more I read, and I've been reading for over 20 years and teaching courses on memoir. I realized that there are so many different paths that people have followed uh, that I wanted to explore some of those. Uh, For example, uh, some people write about what they've done. Some people write about what they've thought. Uh, John Bunyan, for example, his entire spiritual memoir, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, much of it occurs in his head, His, his constant temptations and feelings of worthlessness and despair been uh, remedied by a Bible passage and so forth, but there's not a lot of the exterior world uh, to be had in that. Um, uh, Julian of Norwich, for example, uh, writes about what she saw, not what she did. Mm. One morning, back in, in the 14th century, only a a couple of decades past the bubonic plague in Norwich, England. She's lying on her deathbed. And the priest has been called. She has no feeling from the waist down. She can't hold her head up. It's rolled over on her shoulder. The priest comes and he brings a boy with him. And he says, what priests will say? Daughter, look upon him who died for you and me, and the boy holds up a crucifix. And with all her strength, she manages to open her eye and look at the crucifix. Her mother comes to close her eyes because she thinks she has passed. But suddenly something surprising happens. The little figure of Jesus on the cross begins to bleed. And that, for Julian, unleashes a rolling torrent of visions that take up more than twenty-four hours, but only twenty-four hours of what then would become a long life. So she writes about what she saw. So that's a whole different, um, whole different aspect of uh, religious memoir or spiritual memoir.
1: You say uh, you were curious about the different paths people are on. At the same time by my count, all but one of the people you focus on was Christian, Um, the one exception being uh, a Jewish woman, a European Jew during the Nazi era. Um, Other than that being your tradition and what you're most familiar with, was that a deliberate choice that to to not look at Islamic memoirs, Buddhist memoirs, Hindu memoirs, etc.,
0: and why? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good question. I um, I said in the introduction that I am writing out of my own tradition, which I know and understand, and um. I certainly don't mean to uh, marginalize other traditions, uh, which are also rich in memoir, for sure. Um, but I did want to write faithfully uh, out of the tradition that had formed me and um, which had deeply influenced. Both of the memoirs which I have written, one about my early ministry called Open Secrets, and another about the death of my son called Stations of the Heart. So I, I thought that to cast my net wider than my expertise would be a mistake. Um, I came upon Eddie Hillison, the Jewish, Dutch Jewish woman. Um, almost by accident. In fact, her uh, diaries were only discovered in 1981. And I was so captivated by her spirit and uh, the depth of her poetry uh, and her very Elan that I I was taken mm. by her. And in the course of that, that I also wrote about Elie Wiesel mm. um, and other others. Uh, but um, that's the, you're right. That's the one extent. And I think the second thing was I wanted to show the breadth of the Christian tradition. And, ah. you know, like, for example, a pastoral memoir, it's not about conversion. It's about the ad hoc duties of someone who's trying to minister in the church. Um, so I wrote you know, about uh, Heidi Newmark, who Uh, has a church in Manhattan right now, and uh, also Anne Lamott, Mm. who writes about the daily uh, adventures that she has with her faith that are sometimes rooted in very uh, small or minor occurrences. And the other thing I think that attracted me was uh, literary quality. Um, I wanted to read beautiful writing and um, that's generally how I chose what huh. I had to say. I don't mean for the Christian tradition to somehow encompass everything else. No, I'm sure. By that,
1: yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it, to the extent you're familiar with uh, memoir writing and other traditions, uh, do you see commonalities in in with the with the ones in your own?
0: Commonalities within my tradition? No, um,
1: between memoirs in your tradition and the memoirs in others, if you if you're familiar with those other traditions,
0: I do, and, and I can't speak uh, very knowledgeably about this, but I would see issues of uh, faithfulness mm. in the face of persecution. I would see a, um, a great reverence and love for mystery uh, in the divine. After all, a spiritual memoir differs from a memoir in that it takes humanity and elevates the human to encompass or to be encompassed by the divine. Uh, I see in certain Christian memoirs Uh, the sense of that absorption into the divine, which which is found in Christianity, but also in Buddhism and in other traditions, Mm -hmm. Judaism. Um, So I think they're they're definitely, you know, it sort of reminds me of uh, Thomas Merton's excursions into uh, Mm -hmm. the world of, of Buddhism, and uh, the the tremendous commonalities he found there. Yeah, very good.
1: Um, Mm. Since you raised it earlier and you brought him up as an example, uh, I was very curious why you chose James Baldwin. I was not aware that he had written
0: spiritual memoir. I uh, include Baldwin in a section of the book called Nomadic Faith. Uh, The nomad looks for water wherever he or she can find it and may drink deeply and then may move on. Um, Baldwin did just that with uh, his Pentecostal Christianity in Harlem. Whereas a street kid and a the kid who is having a difficult time finding his way on the on the mean streets
1: mm-hmm.
0: is taken into a Pentecostal church and becomes an adherent and undergoes a shattering conversion experience, um, very reminiscent of the kind that described by Bunyan and others. They even use the same language. Mm-hmm. They call it a coming through, which uh, the image is uh, coming through a very narrow passage, the birth canal. In Bunyan's case, he had a dream that he was moving through a little hole in a fence, one mm. of these stone fences, mm. and didn't know how to get through. And with a great agony, he comes through. And and uh, Bunyan uses, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Baldwin uses the same kind of language to describe his spiritual awakening, and he shares with Bunyan a desire to be on a mountaintop and to see the sun from the mountain and all these wonderful parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Baldwin goes on to become a boy preacher and the most notable one of the most notable preachers in Harlem, outshining his father, who is uh, sort of the villain in his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is also a preacher. And then finally he moves on from these uh, shattering uh, experiences in the tabernacle. But he says, just because you've moved on doesn't mean you've lost what you had. Ah. And he, he goes on to credit his faith and his experience in Pentecostalism with giving him the strength and the courage and the eloquence to write and speak about racism and hypocrisy in the church as he saw it. I call Baldwin uh, an exorcist. Mm. An exorcism, of course, is is a genuine office of the historic Catholic Church, and the exorcist doesn't get rid of evil by making friends with it. Uh, The exorcist pulverizes it. And I think Sereed Baldwin on the church and on America and on race is to be pulverized. Um, But he he spoke before the, the World Council of Churches. He preached a sermon in the National Cathedral. He always gave credit to where he had been And uh, in that sense, and I know others have said, gee, James Baldwin, a spiritual memoir. I don't say that he wrote a complete spiritual memoir, but Uh everything he wrote was about himself.
1: Mm. That's fascinating. Um, A basic question for the readers, uh, for the listeners, rather, Um, and... Perhaps readers of your book, um, what, what well, we, is, we can always hope. Yes. What is the value to the average spiritual seeker in reading mem- spiritual memoirs? What's to be gained?
0: There's a lot to be gained. I think spiritual memoir may be the most intimate of all the genres. And we know from the New York Times and from the bookstores and Amazon that it's still the most popular genre. Um, So there's a great deal to be gained, and I say it's intimate, not so much because whoever writes a memoir does a kind of um, autobiographical striptease or uh, focuses solely on self-expression and self-revelation. Intimacy is not about one person, it's about two. So uh, those who write spiritual memoirs that really get down and work with the reader are effectively establishing a kind of um, partnership between writer and reader. And is that
1: a, the, what you mean by
0: it's about two? It's about two. A spiritual memoir uh, is a kind of offer, but it's not a homiletic or sermonic, sermonic offer made from a pulpit. It's implied. Hmm. It's buried deep within the stuff of writing, drama, plot, characterization, metaphor, all those things that, Make a uh, something enjoyable to read, um, and the writer is saying to the reader, "Look, this this is the path that I took. Uh, these are the mistakes I made. This path is open to you too, and God help you. The mistakes are there for you too. But but first, you've got to close my book, put it aside." And open your own. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a kind of crossing over that takes place. Now, f- further than that, I really think, and I'm speaking here, let us say, in the formation of Christians, but one could say in the formation within any religious tradition, you have the scripture, which even though Christians say they value highly, they don't read all that often, and so they have scripture, they have formal theology, which the ordinary lay person does not read. Karl Barth, Tillich, all all the great theologians, only people who have been to seminary tend to be reading them, and then at the very other end of the spectrum you have the sermon, but in the middle in memoir, you have an honest portrayal of what it means to live a real life in the world, as the Latin theologians would say, coram deo, in the presence of God. And the memoirist, the spiritual memoirist, in my view, one of the ways he or she is distinct from a memoirist is that the spiritual memoirist refuses to narrate a world from which God is absent, or not a factor, or not a factor in the plot. Mm. It doesn't mean that it has to be proclamatory, or triumphalist, or anything of that nature. It's saying there is another dimension here, and you are living in it, and seeking it, and maybe despising it, who knows? But there is another dimension. And most traditions call that dimension God. So that's the sort of the rationale for even thinking about spiritual memoirs. Uh, And some people ask, well, what's the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? In the book, I tend to use them interchangeably because it gets rather cumbersome to keep making distinctions. But Autobiography, of course, takes the whole life in view uh, from from birth to Mm -hmm. whenever the person is writing. And we'll spend a few chapters on formative influences and teachers and training and childhood experiences, the sorts of things that the theologian C.S. Lewis found to be the most interesting part of life. A memoir takes a slice of life or one theme one period of life, one experience and focuses on that. So the memoir, in my view, can be more more explosive in emotional power because it is more compressed. Mm. Interesting. I, I write about a person, uh, a writer, uh, Reynolds Price, who uh, was a distinguished novelist, playwright, and poet. Who won the National uh, Critics Circle Award with his novel, Kate Baden, and so forth. And uh, then wrote a memoir about his cancer and ensuing paraplegia. He called it A Whole New Life. Uh, he wrote three autobiographies that did all the things I said an autobiography does. But this whole new life is so concentrated and uh refuses to to soften the picture of what it means to go through what he did and yet has a certain triumphant quality about it that it well was a bestseller in his day Reynolds has been dead about 10 years so um I write about Reynolds in, in the section called the stripping of the altar um which is um, contains four or five chapters on people who write from the bottom, who've been brought down. Mm -hmm. Um, The title of that section is taken from the uh, Holy Week Christian practice on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday, of uh, solemnly stripping the altar of its pyramids, its linens, its candelabra, its sacred vessels, until it's brought down to bare wood or bare stone. And uh, then when we get it to that point, it almost seems a shame to see the altar that way. So we turn out the lights (laughs) and everybody leaves in darkness and in silence. And, And I feel that that's a great metaphor for the kind of writing that a person like Reynolds did Um, It's um, Abelard and Heloise back in the Middle Ages, their tragic story, and so forth. It's really what I say in the book, I say it's a double strip. It refers metaphorically to uh, the stripping of Jesus before he was put to death. It, It took off his clothes. And they also stripped him of any divine power that he might have claimed for himself. He had nothing. He was down to bare wood. But it's also, I think, a reference to what happens to us in our lives when we are brought down Mm. to the bottom. What are we going to do? Are we going to still talk about Christianity or Judaism or any religion as if it's a cure-all? For all our problems, we're going to find another way of talking about it from the bottom.
1: Mm.
0: There are so many religious memoirs, mostly Protestant, uh, free church, evangelical types that say you become a Christian and you're going to get a better job. <laughs> or you'll find the love of your life. Or maybe you'll get that two-story house you've always been coveting. <laughs> uh, if that's all there is to it, well, that's a fraud.
1: famous Indian spiritual teacher called it shopkeeper religion.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's exactly
1: right. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned in, in the introduction that a spiritual memoir is not a reproduction, but a reappraisal. And I, I, yeah. I was struck by that. And I think I know what you mean, but I'd love to have you explain.
0: Well, um, the writer of all memoirs, I think, autobiographical writing in general, but especially memoir, which is more compressed and tends to be more kaleidoscopic than the orderly autobiography. You know, might, my, my youth, my teen years, and so forth, my college experience. Uh, it, it, memoir tends to operate the way the mind operates i don't know how you remember things but i don't remember in a very good order mm-hmm. it, it all comes sometimes in in a scramble and i have to sort through it so i think that's what um a memoir does as opposed to an autobiography now you ask me repeat your question again I've, I've
1: the reappraisal track. not recollection yeah.
0: yeah that's that's what i meant by that is, you know, we, when we're in the think of our crises in life, or maybe when we're dying, you know, we're not dying with our laptop blazing. Uh, we've set that aside and uh, we come to remembering what we have gone through usually later in life when we, we have uh, a, a time of uh, quiet. As Virginia Woolf said, in a room of our own, you know, when we can reflect. Eddie Hillison said the same thing, the Jewish writer that I was talking about. She said, all I really want is a good room of my own with a good light so mm-hmm. I can read and think and write. So, so we are remembering what has happened to us. It might have been volatile and violent experiences, but we are remembering usually in a mode of tranquility. Mm-hmm. In a library, in a book-lined office, or something like that. Which then gives us a certain amount of distance, even from our own lives, even from stuff we have felt in our gut. Oh, it's past. I, I wrote about the death of my son years after he died. And I wouldn't want to show you what I was writing during those hours. Um, And so so there is a kind of reappraisal going on within one person. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes creates a kind of bifurcation or a duality between the narrator in the book and the person, the same name, which is on the cover of the book. Because the person on the cover has had a lot of time to put this together. Mm-hmm. And to make sense of it, and to even create some order, um, whereas the narrator, as it's happening in the book, is is in the midst of great confusion. What you said. So to remind- some people say, you know, we we write stories, uh, we tell stories in order to make sense of our lives. And, and uh, who was it? Uh, Henry Adams said, "Chaos is the rule of nature; mm-hmm. uh, order is the dream of man." So we're we're both into the chaos, but also into the order, and that's that's what it's all. That's what writing is about. It
1: reminds me of uh, T. S. Eliot saying that poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility.
0: Yes, and Wordsworth said something mm-hmm. like something that as well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, A few more questions. One, uh, you indicated that reading spiritual memoirs can uh, have value, presumably uh, great value or transformative value in the life of the reader. You've you've read a great many spiritual memoirs. How have they affected you and your spiritual life?
0: I believe I've I've been affected in many ways. Uh, I've been filled with admiration and um, strength by reading about what some of the people I've written about endured. I've wondered, for example, how Eddie Hillison, um, going to a concentration camp, could throw a note out the window and say, we left the camp singing from the train, Um, or our God is a high tower. Yeah, I think I haven't really even plumbed the depths of that kind of faith in myself. Uh, But even above and beyond that, I think what I find in religious memoir is the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And by forgiveness, I mean forgiving myself. Mm. Because an honest memoir does not sugarcoat. It doesn't gloss over the hard parts. In fact, some of the best ones dive into the hard parts. You know, yeah. That's the stripping of the altar type thing. And uh, a guy, for example, like C.S. Lewis, who writes after the death of his wife, all kinds of blasphemous things about God. And this is the defender of God, the defensor fide, who wrote all these apologetic texts about the additive benefits of being a Christian or being a theist for that matter. And then uh, his wife dies and everything goes berserk in his brain. And he's roaming around his big house outside Oxford with four examination books hmm. and he he starts writing a clinical record of his grief not grief in general but his grief and the things he admits about himself are really kind of icky hmm. and what he says about god at one point he calls god perhaps he is a divine vivisectionist hmm. you know which is a quite a thing to say about god from one of god's defenders some people read Lewis because they love him and they read A Grief Observed in spite of his outbursts. I'm one of those who reads A Grief Observed because of the outbursts mm. because they are in their own way. It's not an easy cheap grace that he gives, but there is a forgiveness there that we are human beings after all. We're we're not angels writing our stories. and I, I'm reminded that in the history of the Christian tradition, um, the very first Christian heresy was not the denial of Christ's divinity. It was the denial of his humanity. Mm. It was a heresy called docetism. And docao means to seem. And these early Christians just couldn't believe that Jesus... Um, was so human, and so he seemed. He seemed to die, as far uh-huh. as we could tell. He seemed to die. Uh huh. But just as just as the breath was leaving his body up there on the cross, his spirit left him and hovered above, and you know all this sort of uh, Gnostic kind of uh, theology, and and Christianity rejects that, and that I I credit to its heritage in, in Judaism, you know, a or, or religion of earth and people and mm-hmm. know, time and love and, and all those good things and death.
1: It sounds like struggle is a big part of, uh, a, a, if I can say, a memorable spiritual memoir and overcoming struggles, forgiving oneself and all that. There must also be uh, and I think you alluded to this uh, moments of grace, epiphany, uh, what we might call mystical experiences. Whether you know, yeah. and and yeah. how do they both fit in or uh, complement one another? Perhaps
0: I think the, the, the mystical experiences of grace tend to keep the writer going. Mm. They tend to, uh, as Dorothy Day, who wrote a wonderful um, spiritual memoir called The Long Loneliness, she uh, writes about her life and her mission to help poor people, feed poor people in the Lower East Side uh, as the miracle of our continuance. And I think there are these moments, and she... she goes back to a moment in which uh, a young uh, a French peasant instructed her in the faith and uh, took her by the hand and said, this is what you must do. You must devote your life to, to helping these people who don't have enough to eat. Uh, and that, for her, it wasn't so supernatural, but uh, it was a mystical experience. Uh, you know, the great poet and preacher John Donne uh, said late in his life, he said, I date my life from my ministry. And the more I think about that quotation, I actually cite that quotation in my first memoir called Open Secrets. As uh, with my wife and my two kids and our little yellow pinto, we are leaving my first church in the country. I can literally see it in my rearview mirror. And I think of that, that, uh, phrase, I date my life from my ministry. And I think we all have things from which we date our lives. Mm -hmm. And more than one, perhaps. But we have them. And um, we write out of that. We write out of that feeling, that experience, um, whatever you want to call it, that Keeps us going, you might say.
1: Um, I just love that you had a yellow Pinto.
0: Yeah, it uh, <laughs> one of the exploding Pintos. You know that if you got <laughs> rear-ended, if you got rear-ended, then Ford sent you straight to eternity. <laughs> um, but they fixed it with about a five-dollar little insert of plastic between. Uh-huh. Them. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> What? Those were the days when our children were young. We didn't know about seat belts, we didn't right. have car seats. You know, oh, all <laughs>
1: horrible. Um, for uh, our listeners, what advice would you give them when they open, when they approach a spiritual, the reading of a spiritual memoir? what to look for, what attitude to bring to it, what uh, consciousness uh, to approach the book with.
0: To be open, to be trusting, to be open to the divine, to God, to trust the reader and the writer, I should say. You know, in the Confessions, Augustine sounds very modern when he writes about the ideal reader. And he and his finally, and, and these are in the in the uh, books of the Confessions that come after the narrative of his own life. When he reflects on, it. he, he re- basically reflects on what it is to to write. Mm-hmm. And uh, his ideal reader is someone. Who is willing to trust. Hmm. And I think that's that's uh very, very interesting. I, I I have a chapter on a Roman Catholic saint named Teresa of Lesieux, uh, whose background and experiences are very foreign to my own. Um And she wrote a little book when she was 25 years old and dying of tuberculosis. And the very first sentence of her little memoir, it's called The Story of a Soul, is, I am going to entrust the story of my soul with you. Hmm. And you know, if you dwell on each word in that opening sentence, it's a pretty profound act of faith and um, an act of generosity because um, that's exactly what what she does. And if somebody says that to you, I'm willing to entrust something from my interior life or my experience in the world with you. Um, there needs to be a receivership. <laughs> in which the reader is willing to say, and I am willing to entrust my life in some spiritual way with you. I I will tell you, when I used to be a pastor, I was a Lutheran. I think you mentioned it. I am Mm -hmm. a Lutheran pastor. But before I came to Duke, uh, which was a long time ago, I spent eight years in the parish. And I had a country parish, and I had a suburban parish, in two two at two different times. And in both parishes, I always made it my custom when I arrived to go into people's homes by appointment, of course, to call on people and to just talk with them at the at the dining room table. We you know we drink some coffee and have a piece of pie or something like that, and virtually every Stop! I made every call I made just before the the coffee cake came out. Someone in that family would tell me the story of the worst thing that had ever happened to them. And you know, it could be it could be somebody saying, "We date our lives from the day we lost the farm," hmm. or I date my life from. Um, the day my wife left or my husband left. Right. or Sometimes more positively, I, I, I date my life from the day I got sober. Mm. And you can see that is going to be, a, add a certain coloration to everything about these people. And they are willing to trust me. And I have to be willing to keep that in my own heart. And I always took that to mean It was a way of saying, how can you possibly be our pastor if you don't know that about us? Mm. How can you not bear a little of that with us by not knowing? Mm. And I think something perhaps in a more sterile or uh, uh, academic atmosphere occurs in reading when you trust the writer, and the writer trusts you to be a trusting
1: person. I'm guessing that if I were to ask what advice you had for people who want to write a spiritual memoir, that trusting the
0: reader would be a big element to that. Trust the reader? Yeah. And um, when I first wrote a memoir, I came with no preconceived uh, knowledge of the genre memoirs i came with no preconceived agenda for making the institution of the church look good Uh, i i really was writing out of the things that i was dating my life from Mm -hmm. you know when my son died that was the more most is the most important most important thing for my wife and for me that had ever happened to us you know was unthinkable um And in the case of writing about my first ministry in in a country church, and I'm not a country boy, uh, it was a very foreign experience for me to be out in the middle of a cornfield, uh, (laughs) out on the prairie of Southern Illinois. Um, When I decided to write about it 25 years later, I took out a yellow pad and I, started writing down scenes because I think I conceived my ministry as a series of scenes. And I I wrote probably 20, 25 scenes. And then I looked at them, just jotted down in shorthand. And if that scene still had the power to move me or to make me laugh or make me cry, I kept it. Mm. And then it was just a matter of, how are these scenes a story? And it wasn't that difficult to, to trace the my experience of various scenes uh, through to their conclusion. Um, and for me in that particular book, finding a plot was the most difficult thing, but I did discern a plot, a pattern, Mm -hmm. figure in the carpet Mm -hmm. uh, that I could discern and follow. With the book about my son, the plot was all too obvious and clear to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in looking back on that, I think of it as a kind of liturgical memoir that moves in a rather stately fashion the way the church year moves through Holy Week, let us say, which is Actually, now, at the moment that I'm speaking to you, um, in our tradition, in the Christian tradition, people are rehearsing the same story, mm-hmm. which uh, underlies the entire gamut of all our stories in that tradition. Well, thank you. We never you. change it. <laughs> no,
1: and for the reader, uh, for the listener who's listening in the future... Uh, we're recording this just a few days before Easter in 2023. Um, Richard Lisher, uh, thank you so much for your time uh, and for sharing this uh, all these insights with us, listeners. Um, if your uh, heart is restless, as all of us, all of ours, are, um, avail yourself of a good spiritual memoir. And a good start would be uh, Richard Lisher's book, Our Hearts Are Restless, The Art of Spiritual Memoir. Thanks again uh, for being with us, uh, Professor Lisher, and thank you listeners for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends, email me with suggestions. Keep in touch, and we'll see you next week. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson, we will show you how to deepen your relationship
0: with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.